Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters, relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, May 1, 2019, and this is the Bob Seska Show, interviews from Earth One, brought to you today by ProFlowers.com, promo code B-O-B-C. My guest today is the great Sarah Kenzior, Russia expert and co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast with Andrea Chalupa, who, by the way, we spoke with two weeks ago on this show. Patreon.com slash Gaslit, links in the description below. Today, we're going to talk about the Mueller report and especially the letter Mueller wrote to Bill Barr that dropped in the Washington Post yesterday. By the way, if you like what you hear, please consider supporting this show at bobseskashow.com. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Thank you. And now, here comes my conversation with Sarah Kenzior. Hello, Sarah. It's Bob Seska. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great, great. I know this is a terrible, terrible time to be talking <laughs> during the bar oh, testimony. No, every time is a terrible time. <laughs> yeah, there's there's no break, is there? It's just constantly no. 24 hours, the uh, fire hose of news, as we like to call it. Uh, it's yep. uh, Yeah. I mean, how do you get anything done? How do you how do you deal with this? Uh, I mean, I'm speaking not you, just not the royal you, but you personally. I mean, how do you how are you coping with this ongoing barrage, the bombardment with uh, all of this, uh, all of this crap dropping twenty four seven. I mean, it's irritating. It's this weird combination of chaos and inertia because there's this constant change and all these little developments um, and all these things that people are saying or testifying. But the broader picture, mm-hmm. unfortunately, um, doesn't really change. This consolidation of autocracy um, by the administration, the erosion of law, like. That's the constant drumbeat that's going on um, Mm. as all these little scandals erupt and Trump tries to run out the clock. So uh, that's what I try to keep an eye on. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do to uh, get your mind off of things? How how are you uh, how how are you offering yourself self-therapy in some sense? Oh, well, I've got two kids, so I don't talk about, uh, you know, Trump and uh, organized <laughs> crime and the death of democracy with them. I think something else to do so is so, so, busy. So you're not, like, uh, delivering information about Uzbekistan to your children as you drive them to soccer practice or something, right? Uh, I actually 
do. They actually they know a lot more about Uzbekistan than the average child. But you know the the good stuff, the fun stuff. <laughs> That's right. Well, you wrote your dissertation about Uzbekistan. I just want to make that entirely clear that it's just not something random that you bring up. That you actually have a, a lot of expertise in that uh, in that area, right? Yeah, yeah. I wrote my dissertation about um, how exiles from Uzbekistan, you know, which is an authoritarian state in post-Soviet Central Asia, uh, how they used the Internet um, in the 2000s to try to battle their then dictator, uh, Islam Karimov, and wrote basically about the, the dark side of the Internet, about the way that dictators can use the Internet for surveillance, um, you know, for propaganda, to uh, disrupt, you know, civil society, to impersonate people, to release their public their information to the public, all the things that yeah. uh, Russia has also done and that the Trump administration and the Trump campaign um, have been doing. So, you know, when Trump emerged in 2016, it was very familiar to me. And I actually wrote an article in, I think, February 2016 saying that Trump would probably win, and if he won, he would rule like a Central Asian autocrat. I think the yeah. article is called Trump Minbashi, you know, a nod to Turk Minbashi, who's the ruler of Turkmenistan. So, yeah, that's not what I expected to be using my dissertation for, but uh, that is what's happened. So, so uh, let me ask you this, Sarah. I mean, along those lines, um, did you see the Russian attack coming before it really uh, hit the ground? I guess my view of the, the entire thing has to do with the fact that uh, um, Russia not only engaged in this attack, this invasion, but it had unwitting foot soldiers on the ground inside the United States. So, um, one, did you see it coming? And two, uh, in Uzbekistan, when this has been tried before, how participatory were uh, the people who were the subject of, of these attacks? Yeah, um, for the first question, you know, did I see Russia coming? I mean, yes, I saw it as a threat. I saw it as a underrated threat, particularly, um, you know, after they took Crimea. Um, yeah. And I was also interested in how Russia was using the Internet, because there is this idea that authoritarian states, uh, you know, they censor, they restrict content. And I was mm -hmm. watching how they left the Internet open, um, basically to confuse people, to bombard them uh, with propaganda and conspiracy theories and lies to the mm -hmm. point that they gave up on the pursuit of truth altogether. And that's yep. very much uh, in the vein of what Trump did. And I don't think he needed Russian inspiration for that. I think that's just uh, kind of how he operates on his own. Um, you know, what I didn't see coming, I think, were the mafia connections, the extent of criminal ties between Trump uh, and I wouldn't even call them Russian actors exactly. It's a transnational crime syndicate that concludes, you know, people from around the world, you know, just with a lot of heavy Russian involvement uh, linked to the Kremlin, you know, these lines between who is a Kremlin, you know, in the Kremlin, uh, who is an oligarch, who is an organized crime, those are all blurred. You know, it's a kind mm. of apparatus that acts as one, and that Trump and his family uh, and his company have been engaged with, you know, for decades. And so once I started looking to that, and of course, once Paul Manafort uh, joined the campaign, I was deeply <laughs> alarmed. And my question was, you know, and still remains, why didn't the FBI didn't do anything? Like, why didn't the CIA do anything? Like, it yeah. was like a million red flags that nobody was heeding. And I'm still wondering, like, how do you let a guy like this near national security issues? Like, how do you even let him or Manafort, for that matter, get close yeah. uh, to White House power? 
So yeah, um, and in terms of Uzbekistan, you know, that's that's not the greatest comparison because they've always been an authoritarian state, whether in the Soviet Union or after, uh, you know, completely different history of democracy and, mm. and sets of expectations. I think countries like uh, Russia, you know, countries that are, are partially open in terms of their internet and media and their politics, although increasingly closed, uh, are a better example because you could watch that pattern of consolidation and of manipulation at play and you can you know see a lot of the same dangers and the same warning signs happening here. Now, I want to uh, mention something as far as uh, what you just said with regard to um, you know how the intelligence community, how the FBI approached the, the Russian attack prior to it really becoming public and, and the full extent of the, the attack being known. Um, did 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 part of Russia's strategy here involve exploiting the abnormality of something like this? Insofar as um, if it actually occurred, I just imagine the planning phase of okay, so we're going to get the GRU to hack a bunch of things, and then we're going to have the Internet Research Agency do a, this entire propaganda push on social media and so on, and and the rest is history. D- did that process involve? Um, knowing that the American government would not know how to handle something like this because it had never happened before, and therefore they could kind of get away with it because the concern would be, as it turned out, um, one of politics. Like, does the sitting Democratic president really start to lean on the alarm bells uh, with regard to an opposition party candidate running for president and getting help from Russia. Um, so th- the inability for the government to react at that point in time because of politics, is that something that Russia really exploited? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, they studied very carefully how our system worked, what its weaknesses were, uh, which people they could exploit, how our media economy works. I think they mm-hmm. studied that particularly closely. You know, I think they had a couple of advantages. Um, you know, one was complicity uh, within the GOP, uh, probably within the FBI. There's still some unexplained behavior um, on James Comey's part. So Mm -hmm. I don't think everyone was unwitting. There were witting actors, but then there were weaknesses. And I think, you know, Obama's style of management, um, you know, he wanted things to be bipartisan. He didn't want to get confrontational. Um, You know, when Mitch McConnell would uh, undermine his presidency, obstruct his presidency, he always wanted to kind of take the high road. That's an extremely ineffective way of dealing with Russia. And I do have questions about not just Obama as an individual, but about the whole administration and why they didn't take this threat more seriously. Because by 2016, you know, Russia had hacked the DOD, the State Department, the DNC, Mm -hmm. the RNC, voter rolls, the electric grid, like really long list (laughs) of hacking. We knew basically that WikiLeaks had become a front for Russian intelligence, even though it might not have started out that way. Like, you know, Hillary Clinton talked about this openly during her campaign. She Mm -hmm. released videos about it. So it's not like this was a secret. This is something they all knew about. uh, And they seemed to just be placing their bets on, oh, he's not going to win. Uh, Hillary will win, and then we'll just, you know, it'll be cool. We'll work it out, which in itself is, is nuts. But it's also, like, really uh, clueless about Trump's odds of winning. You know, one, because Trump did have some popular support. But also, when you put this much effort into a plan, like when you put, you know, this is like Trump's fifth time of either running for president or almost running for president. You know, all these other operatives, people like Stone, Manafort, they've been in this for 30 years. Putin is like someone who always has this very long-term plans. 
when they're all planning something, you have to kind of consider, but what if they win? I mean, like, what yeah. if they pull it off? Like, what are you going to do then? And it's like no one considered that. And they keep making these same errors that are like mm. rookie errors. You know, things like William Barr. Everyone's like, like acting shocked by the way he's behaving. It's like, do you, have you met this guy? Like, go to Wikipedia. Like, read about Iran-Contra. Yeah. Read the memo he wrote against the Mueller probe. Like, you don't need to be in the FBI to know this. You just need, like, you know, a internet connection or a library card and some common sense. So I am confused uh, as to why, I guess, people weren't more aware of their own weaknesses and, and how a hostile foreign power could exploit them. It seems to me as if um, abnormal is taking advantage of normal. I think the, the party divide in all of this, I think partially the reason why Obama didn't take a harder line on the Russian attack as it was happening, especially as you get into uh, late summer of 2016 or so, is because he was still relying on all things being normal, while at the same time Donald Trump and certainly Vladimir Putin and Russia were playing a, a highly abnormal game. It was almost like a, a constant um, sucker punch that you're just not ready for it. And, and Obama's in the ring and he's he's kind of defending himself in the normal way. And they're using like a bazooka or something. They've brought a they've brought heavy weaponry into the boxing ring. And Obama's going, I don't know what to do about this now. Um, it seems to me as if that's really. Uh, why more action wasn't taken. And I, I don't want to say here that Obama didn't do anything because certainly he tried to do a few things. He certainly spoke to Vladimir Putin um, while all of that was going on. Um, but at the same time, he didn't do enough. And I get the sense that there, there's almost like an epidemic of that, not only circulating through the Democratic Party, I also get the sense that Robert Mueller was playing a normal game in abnormal times. Do, do, you, uh, do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been saying on our show on Gaslit Nation, you can't go buy the book when the book is burning. Uh, yeah. And that's what's been happening. You know, um, basically, it, it's kind of extended to how the general public has reacted. You know, people mm. had normalcy bias, like that's what I've been calling it throughout the campaign, where they would hear these stories about what Trump was up to with Russia. And, you know, even journalists would often dismiss them as hyperbole or as fantasy because they thought, you know, if this is really happening, mm. like if we really are having uh, the presidency grasped by a hostile foreign power from the inside, like clearly uh, the FBI or the CIA or Obama would do something about it. They would protect the country. Yeah. Uh, you know, they would take steps to prevent it. And they didn't. Um, and that's really shameful. And I do think that there is this kind of idea, you know, certainly in Obama's mind that, you know, things will just work out, uh, you know, the checks and balances will hold that uh, the Republican Party somehow will behave itself or not stoop to this level. But what bothers me is that, you know, the behavior of, of Trump, uh, you know, and all of his backers, Russian, American, and otherwise, it seems abnormal if you're expecting a functional democracy, mm. but it's extremely normal for Trump. I mean, this is like a 40-year pattern of behavior going back to, you know, his work with Roy Cohn, you know, and we, we saw stuff like that, like during Watergate, we saw these Republicans behaving this way during Iran-Contra, during the financial crisis, in the lead up to the war with Iraq. And it's certainly, it is absolutely how Putin operates. He did the same thing, basically, uh, in Ukraine with people 
people like Manafort helping him. And so when you have the same people over and over again, and you have these partnerships that are documented in the public domain, and I would hope that in addition to the public domain information, um, you know, our, our agencies know more uh, than I do and would prepare, you think they would take dramatic action. I mean, I think you should have held a press conference. I think, you know, possibly they should have delayed the election. Uh, I don't know. I mean, to me, it seems incredibly urgent. And the only reason I didn't think it was even more urgent than it was is because they weren't doing anything. And I think a lot of people looked at it that way. They thought, well, this can't be that consequential. Maybe I can sit this election out because I don't like either of these candidates. And they didn't know the state. Uh, and that, that bothers me a lot because yeah. I think you should always err on the side of caution if you're a public official because your job is to protect the country. Yeah. It seems like there's a quite a dividing line between the public urgency, and I'm talking about those of us who have been following this story from the beginning and know all of the granular detail as it, as it flies on by, um, as opposed to people who are only casually following politics. It seems to me as if those of us who have been following it have, uh, have really been leaning on the panic button. And it, it, there's just a gigantic divide between us and our leadership, which seems like while they are taking a harder approach, and certainly there have been some admirable decisions and choices made by Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler and some others, at the same time, I don't feel like it's enough. I don't feel like enough is being done given the gravity of the situation. I mean, the harrowing uh, dangers and the peril that we face, not only in terms of the Russian attack, but in terms of how it's being handled uh, politically on the ground here. Um, and that's a big part of it. I mean, do you see the political reaction as being a, an integral part of this crisis as be, in a negative sense where it just doesn't seem like anyone's taking it seriously or at least to the level they should? Yeah, it's it's very disturbing to me. Um, you know, I've seen this as a crisis since 2016. And, you know, since 2017, basically like within weeks of Trump taking office, they had grounds uh, to call for impeachment, you know, not yeah. just because of the Russia case, but because of emoluments, and then later the abuse of the pardon po uh, power, the abuse of um, migrants, you know, in, in illegal containment practices, like all these things. And they have refused to do this. Uh, and they kind of, you know, the Democrats lean on this excuse of, oh, we don't have and, you know, the House, we don't have the Senate. But, you know, once you get back the House, like, that is when you need to take urgent action, because this isn't like a partisan dispute, and this isn't an abstract matter. You know, there are lives on the line, and one of the things that I find very frustrating is the Democrats will say, oh, we can't focus on, uh, you know, Trump and Russia. We need to look at domestic policy. And I'm like, those are the same things. Like, yeah. if this government controls everything, you know, if the GOP is trying to be a one party autocratic state then that has dire consequences in terms of things like health care the environment immigration the treatment of migrants the rollback of civil rights the rollback of voting rights and if you roll back those things then you don't get a second chance you know you don't mm -hmm. get to like you know work it out in 2024 you have the country effectively over and that's the juncture uh that i believe we're at and i think that they should be acting with the utmost urgency and with utter transparency like they need to present 
the stakes of the situation to the American people, even if it's frightening, because people need to know the truth. You know, they need to prepare um, for what may happen, and they need to know what rights are in jeopardy so that they can fight for those rights themselves. And, uh, you know, they either sugarcoat the situation until they just can't anymore. That's in part because Trump is so blatant about what he's doing. He just, like, runs around confessing all his crimes on on Twitter and on television. And, you know, in bars, very flagrant as well. They all kind of get off on this. So it's become harder for them to play down uh, how abnormal things are and how dangerous things are, but they're not taking actual steps uh, to remedy them, the most obvious of which would be impeachment um, in terms of hearings to inform the public and in terms of, you know, potentially legal consequences. And yeah, you know, you asked about Mueller. I think Mueller ran a pretty bad probe. You know, he did not uh, indict people who very obviously should have been indicted, like Mm -hmm. Jared Kushner, people who have committed crimes openly and are active ongoing threats. He didn't allow the judge to sentence Flynn, even though Flynn is a danger to public safety. Like, I was frustrated with this probe before the report came out. Mm -hmm. Then Barr comes out, lies about the contents of the report, and Mueller doesn't say anything for like a month until last night when he finally, you know, releases his letter. It's like, you know, what are you thinking? Like, whose side are you on? The side of democracy or the side of a mafia syndicate? Because quite honestly, he looks, you know, like in a better of a mafia syndicate, and that's not what you want in a special counsel. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? I couldn't agree more. I just wrote a salon piece about that exact thing, that I don't think Mueller was acting uh, strong enough uh, given the nature of the threat. Like, uh, it was an anachronistic kind of investigation. It was an investigation that was more indicative of an investigation of George H.W. Bush rather than uh, Donald Trump, for example. Just throwing out uh, Bush as an example there. Um, and, and so what ended up happening was, uh, once again, we see this conflict between uh, Robert Mueller playing a normal game and everyone he's investigating playing a deeply abnormal game. And why wasn't there a rising to that occasion that, that took place in the context of that investigation, certainly in the context of, of the report that was issued. But before we uh, get into Mueller uh, in more detail, because I definitely have some more to say about him, I want to talk about, go back to something you were mentioning about all of these other things that could end up turning into or should end up turning into impeachment articles that are somehow effectively getting steamrolled in uh, as everyone pays attention to Russia. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't pay attention. Absolutely. The, the Russian attack is maybe the number one issue that we should be paying attention to right now. Um, but at the same time, it seems like Donald Trump is, is kind of hiding behind the, the flooding of the zone where there's such a catastrophic series of crimes here related to the election and ongoing uh, attacks on our sovereignty. But at the same time, there's all these other things that aren't getting the attention they deserve. How do we square that? Because, I mean, it seems to me as at least Donald Trump, there there ought to be an article of impeachment about Donald Trump's threat to withhold relief money for Puerto Rico just because the mayor of San Juan was mean to him. You know, it just seems like that should be an article of impeachment, but we're barely even through the things linked to Russia. How do we uh, how do we balance all of that out, sir? Yeah, I mean, it's very frustrating. I don't buy the excuses that it's, you know, too much for the Democrats to do. It's like if you and I, as just ordinary people, are able to keep all of these issues in our head and also connect them and see how, you know, if if you don't uh, do anything about one, you're going to have a worse version of the other. They should be able to do that as well. And it's their job. um, You know, and I also think we've seen some failure 
generally speaking, uh, by the media to emphasize certain issues. Uh, you know, the fact that Puerto Rico has basically disappeared off the radar yeah. for the last, you know, year and a half um, is an indication of that. You know, same with things that were once thought to be uh, groundbreaking events like the Helsinki uh, made up with Putin last year, uh, Charlottesville sort of comes and goes to the public consciousness. And some of this is, you know, a result of so many atrocities happening simultaneously. But that's not an excuse for a lawmaker to therefore ignore atrocities. If anything, that's an indication that impeachment is desperately needed because those atrocities are just going to continue to multiply as they consolidate power, and you're going to lose the ability to pursue them um, and stop them on legal grounds. You know, as all this is happening, Trump, or really, you know, the GOP apparatus, is packing the courts, they're purging agencies, they're taking out all of, uh, you know, the, the vectors of accountability, basically, and, you know, making it impossible to pursue this in the future. And that's part of the strategy. Another part is running out the clock, knowing there's a statute of limitations, knowing mm-hmm. that people, you know, get exhausted over time. I mean, this is such a textbook, you know, how to build an autocracy and the Democrats and others still have a shot at trying, you know, I don't know if they can completely reverse it, but they can at least slow it down. They can at least expose it to the public and people like Pelosi, you know, they just won't take that shot. You know, there are some Democrats, you know, who've been very vocal about this, you know, Maxine Waters in particular, but Mm -hmm. on the whole, um, they're behaving either in a cowardly way or a complicit way or just in a clueless way. And and none of those are good, you know, in this time of urgency. They really need to to get their act together. Yeah. And, you know, why didn't uh, Mueller offer recommendation to either Barr or Congress with regard to uh, charges on on the very least obstruction cases, at least 10 that were listed in the uh, volume two of the report? Why wasn't he more explicit about what should be done from the issuance of the report forward uh, rather than kind of creating a nuanced argument uh, along those lines where, you know, knowing that in this day and age in 2019, for better or worse, uh, nuance generally dies, (laughs) especially when it uh, enters the realm of the Internet. Um, Why do you think he wasn't more clear about those things? I'm not sure. I think he should be asked that under oath. I think he should have to testify to Congress. And I think people should stop uh, coddling Mueller or treating him like he's the savior. You know, they either treat him like he's this innocent little child. Like, oh, how is he supposed to know what Barr would do or what people like to put up this institutionalist image? Like, oh, you know, Mueller, he's so by the book. He's just dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Like, the number of times I heard that, I'm like, well, you know, dot the I and cross the T on indict because it's honestly the only word that really matters to the Trump camp. Um, And so that's been frustrating. You know, he's either extremely inept uh, as a prosecutor or he's potentially compromised. You know, it is on my mind that Mueller is somebody who was the head of the FBI from 2001 to 2013 when this crime syndicate uh, really took hold and took power to the extent that it was Mueller himself in a speech in 2011 that, you know, he gave a speech about it being, you know, the greatest danger essentially to humanity, how it was not some sort of abstract issue, how there's a new kind of organized crime inserting itself into corporations and governments that was going to profoundly impact our daily lives. He talked about rising prices. He talked about, you know, democracies becoming autocracies. He really seems to understand this issue, and he uh, 
named specifically the head of the Russian mafia, you know, who Trump has been linked to for a very long time uh, as the biggest threat and then did nothing about it. So it's hard to say that he's naive. He refused to act. Uh, Comey refused to act. Comey took that guy, um, Semyon Mungilovich, off the FBI's most wanted list uh, for reasons that were never explained right as Trump uh, began to gain ground in his campaign in late 2015. And all that adds up to a really disturbing picture. And I don't know what that picture is. That's what I was hoping to learn from the Mueller report. But instead, the Mueller report was like, it's actually like press clippings. You know, yeah. it's all mostly materials that were in the public domain already and that I knew. Um, and nothing new has been brought to the fore, which is why I think he needs to go under oath. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? Um, on one hand, we're spending a lot of time indicting uh, 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 Bill Barr and Donald Trump for spinning the Mueller report and saying things about it that don't uh, that aren't actually true, whether it's uh, no obstruction or what have you, that, that Trump is completely exonerated, all of those things. But at the same time, while we're accusing them of lying about the report, shouldn't we say a few things about I, I think I know your answer before you even give it, but shouldn't we be saying something about Robert Mueller and his vague language? allowing that to happen i mean it seems like he didn't get the idea that he's dealing with a white house that will say and do anything to exonerate itself and he kind of played right into that didn't he yeah absolutely i mean the minute that Barr released what Mueller is now confirming is an inaccurate summary and of course mm-hmm. we know it's inaccurate because we've seen the report Um, But a month went by in between those two things. He should have spoken out. He should have released a statement. He should have released his own summaries that he had prepared. I have no idea um, what the weakness is here that held him back. You know, people like to make excuses for him. They said, oh, it's DOJ protocol. It's like, well, he's not working for the DOJ now. He's not part of that. He's a private citizen. He can say whatever he wants. And this is a time when he urgently needs to just tell the truth, you know, for the American public. That's why he was appointed as the special counsel. And he didn't do that. And it's hard for me to think he's that naive because, of course, for the last month, he watched this play out. He watched initially a lot of people grab onto the bar narrative. You know, that was the first one. That's the one that people will often remember. And, you know, then he watched the Mueller report come out and a lot of people try to summarize that inaccurately. And he's remained completely quiet. And I'm sorry, like, that's not the act of a patriot. That's not the actions of someone who cares about the fate of his country. That's someone who seems pretty content to just let it go down so long as people like him, you know, white, wealthy Republican men uh, are not hurt. You know, that seems to be um, his priority. I don't understand, you know, of all the people in this horrific saga, he has more power uh, than most. And he could use that power responsibly, uh, you know, to serve his country, or he could just dodge out. And, you know, I, I don't understand why he's, uh, you know, running from that responsibility, yeah. but that is what he's done. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know what? More of that is occurring now because with the leak of this Mueller letter, uh, the letter that Mueller wrote to uh, William Barr that we saw uh, come out in the Washington Post last night, that there's more conflicting language that leaves all kinds of wiggle room that we're seeing Bill Barr just sashay right through today in the in the uh, Senate hearing. 
Um, and, and what I'm speaking of specifically is the letter actually says the summary letter the department sent to Congress and released to the public late in the afternoon of March 24th did not fully capture the content, nature and substance of this office's work and conclusion. So we know that. But at the same time, we see this passage in the Washington Post piece. And we by the way, we're seeing William Barr. Uh, really exploiting that to his own advantage today. The passage goes, when Barr pressed Mueller on whether he thought Barr's memo to Congress was inaccurate, Mueller said he did not, but felt that the media coverage of it was misinterpreting the investigation, officials said. What do you make of that passage, Sarah? I mean, you know, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth and yeah. both sides are saying bullshit. So, you know, it's kind of hard to, <laughs> to square all that away. I think that, you know, Mueller allowed Barr uh, an opening in the in the fact that he did not come out um, and immediately correct that report. Mm-hmm. Barr, uh, you know, seems to allow Mueller a lot of leeway. Nobody is pushing for transparency. No one's describing what actually happened in forthright terms. All of this also kind of you know, goes around the fact that the Mueller report, at least in my view, is not a very good report. Like, it's not very thorough. It's missing a lot of information. It, you know, he didn't interview a lot of key players. It admits the broader context, which Mueller, you know, as I mentioned, explored himself as head of the FBI of the role of transnational mafias in government, and specifically uh, Mogilevich, who Trump worked with. You know, you didn't do a good job, and we're all here kind of arguing and nitpicking about the particulars because what they put out was such an incredible lie. You know, this idea that Trump is exonerated, that Trump did not uh, collude with Russia, you know, like that all of this is just something that people made up. I mean, that's just a flat lie. Mm -hmm. But underneath that is still (laughs) a pretty lackluster uh, you know, investigative report, it, it, which does not, you know, exonerate Trump. It's it's not a lie per se. It is not high quality. And I kind of wonder, you know, what were they up to? And it's difficult for me to think that Mueller, uh, you know, wasn't, I, I guess, you know, involved in this somehow, given that he is close friends with Barr, given that this is a social circle he's moved in for a long time. You know, people say, oh, he wasn't. He couldn't have possibly been complicit in this because he's such an upstanding citizen. And I'm like, he's not behaving like an upstanding citizen right now. So I don't know how to kind of, um, you know, put that together, you know, his reputation with his actions. You know, he's certainly not living up to this glorified reputation that they gave him. And the consequences, uh, both for our country and for ordinary citizens, are enormous. Uh, And it's hard for me to believe he doesn't understand that. Okay, we're going to continue with Sarah in just a second. But first, let's talk about Mother's Day, just 12 days away. And I'm all set with gifts for my mom. Ha ha. Thanks to proflowers.com. For about seven years, I lived on the opposite end of the world. I lived in Hawaii and then California, thousands of miles from where my mom lives. So I desperately needed a convenient way to shower her with my appreciation on Mother's Day. Proflowers was the perfect way to say Happy Mom's Day when I couldn't necessarily travel thousands of miles for the occasion. Oh, by the way, the other day I also bought my girlfriend and after-party co-host Kimberly Johnson a dozen multicolored roses from Pro Flowers, and they arrived exactly when I wanted them to, and they both looked and smelled freshly cut direct from the farm and nourished by Pro Flowers' innovative gel pack and thanks to Pro Flowers' express delivery. But they've got way more than just roses at Pro Flowers. Pro Flowers let you choose from a variety of bouquets and unique vases to suit any mom's style, 
And right now, get this, with just 12 days to go, get a dozen roses for $19.99. Double the roses and get a premium vase for just $9.99 more. Visit proflowers.com, then click the microphone in the upper right corner. Enter the promo code B-O-B-C. Again, promo code B-O-B-C. That's proflowers.com. Click the microphone and enter B-O-B-C. Mother's Day is May 12th, so don't wait. Order like a pro and get this amazing rose deal to thank all the moms in your life. Thank you for supporting the Bob Seska Show by supporting proflowers.com. The Bob Seska Show. How badly were we um, duped by our own expectations? We, I think in a lot of ways, we superimposed a lot of superpowers onto Robert Mueller that he doesn't actually possess. You know, I always go back to the, uh, I don't know if you remember the old Chuck Norris memes where they would just, it was like how great Chuck <laughs> yeah. Norris is. Like Chuck Norris doesn't do push-ups, he pushes the earth down. Were we doing that with Robert Mueller? And then when we see the real Robert Mueller, um, we're blindsided. Is is that kind of what happened where the the real Robert Mueller was the Mueller that was going to happen all along? And then we had this inflated idea of what was going to happen, what he was going to do. And so the real fault, and I'm just speaking hypothetically, the real fault is our overly hyped expectations. Is that what happened or were, you know, was all of this anticipation about Mueller and his powers, was that all well-placed? I mean, I think it's a combination. Like I personally did not share the high expectations for Mueller basically because I was just tracking the probe and I thought it was really poorly done. I thought it was too slow. I thought they weren't indicting people. I thought he was making weird plea deals with people like Manafort. (laughs) So my expectations were low you know, my partner, um, Andrea Chalupa on Gaslit Nation, we yep. did an episode in October 2018 called Robert Mueller Will Not Save You. And we took an enormous amount of flack uh, for daring to state that, but that was just based on the evidence we saw. And I do think, you know, there's far too much hype around him, but that hype is kind of revealing of the broader situation that we're in, that this seems to be the one way that they could actually take Trump uh, and all of these criminals surrounding him down. You know, this was our only route because checks and balances had failed, you know, because Congress was not doing its job, because the FBI was not doing its job. So then it just boiled down to Mueller. And then Mueller didn't do his job. Um, and I know there's another part. What was the other part of the question? <laughs> well, I know it was just about beyond the height. Yeah. Yeah. It was just about whether or not we, our expectations exceeded uh, Robert Mueller's ability. Oh, or, yeah. I remember what I was going to say, like, even if Mueller had done a spectacular job, like even if he had written, um, you know, a very incriminating, detailed, uh, contextualized report, this outcome with Barr and with Trump, still would have happened because they are, they will do absolutely anything to not be indicted and to not be taken out of power because if they're out of power, they're going to be held accountable. And this is also the culmination of, I think, you know, a multi-decade project by the GOP to basically transform the U.S., uh, you know, into a one-party autocratic state. And I don't think it was always all of the GOP. I think the, the fringes became the center for that party over time. And they did it uh, in tandem, you know, with Russian partners. And also, I think, with help from Israel, help from Saudi Arabia. You know, you're seeing the same uh, names of people close to the Trump camp or close to others in the GOP coming up over and over again. So they would have done anything uh, to negate 
the meaning of this report and to make sure it didn't have the only kind of consequences that matter to them, which are legal consequences. I mean, they need to be in jail. That's the only thing that's going to actually contain them. And even there, it doesn't really, like Manafort was still writing propaganda for Ukrainian newspapers while in jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so it doesn't always work, but that's the only thing that they understand is just, you know, force and legal consequences. They don't care about shame. They don't care about laws. They don't care about protocol. And that's what the Democrats and Mueller and others keep trying to turn to uh, it's it's not going to work uh, for those particular high moving players, uh, you know, in the Trump camp. It might work for, um, you know, it might have an impact on I think the general American public to see laws respected, to see kind of our legal processes or processes of democracy going, which is another reason to have impeachment hearings. Yeah. But they, you know, they will do anything uh, to win, and it doesn't matter what happens to the country or what happens to the people living in it. Do you think Robert Mueller just gifted Donald Trump a pretext to not leave office in uh, in 2021? Uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, obviously here, all of these obstruction charges in the Mueller report are charges that can be prosecuted once Trump leaves office. So knowing that and knowing that Mueller didn't offer a prosecutorial uh, recommendation in the report, at at the very least to Congress, for God's sake, um, now Trump has got the impression that, well, when I leave office, I'm going to be prosecuted for obstruction of justice. Maybe I should think about doing everything necessary to not leave office in 2021, even if that means uh, losing the election and just discrediting the whole thing and throwing all the whole thing into doubt. Whatever he chooses to do, however he chooses to do it, do you think that this inadvertently gave him uh, grounds upon which he can uh, pursue that goal? I think that was always Trump's goal. I think that was the goal basically from, you know, 2015, 2016 onward because he needed to protect, uh, you know, the ramifications of all his previous crimes, yeah. you know, for which he was uh, never indicted and for the crimes that he committed during the campaign and now for the crimes that he's committed in office. And those also include the crimes of Ivanka and of Jared, who are maybe like the two people I, I think he would stick his neck out for. I actually don't think he would for Donald Jr. But, um, you know, so I think that this was already in his mind. Uh, and therefore, because it was very obvious, you know, we even saw Michael Cohen talking at his testimony about how Trump wasn't going to leave in 2020. It should have been on Mueller's mind. And yeah. Mueller should have written the language in a direct way uh, so that Trump would not be able to use it for propaganda. And of course, you know, Trump will use anything for propaganda. If mm-hmm. Mueller had said, you know, Trump is a career criminal uh, who needs to be behind bars for the safety of the nation, you know, Trump would just say witch hunt, witch hunt. He made it up. He's working for Soros. He's working for the Democrats. He'd just make up some nonsense things. But still, you know, you don't want to give him that out when you're telling the truth. And, you know, a truthful statement would be Donald Trump needs to be, uh, you know, imprisoned so that he's not able to harm our country and others, you know, and and because he has committed crimes steadily uh, for 40 years without punishment. I mean, that's that's not like my opinion. That's just a fact. And he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't go that far. I mean, obviously, in legal language, you know, you do things differently. But still, um, I think he could have made a much stronger statement and he shouldn't have given him anything extra to work with. Should we be content with the idea that uh, that Junior is probably going to go down uh, with regard to the SDNY investigation rather than going down with regard to the Mueller report? I mean, I obviously many of us were frustrated that there was no indictment of Don Jr. Uh, for the Trump Tower meeting and all the uh, 
actions involved around that. Uh, certainly the meeting with the Psy Group in August and so on. It seems to me as if there was enough cause to at least uh, uh, prosecute Don Jr. Nothing happened along those lines, but SDNY's got a shot at him uh, with the uh, you know the financial crimes. Um, so is that consolation enough, or should we be more irritated that uh, that Mueller didn't get him? Well, I'm irritated with Mueller, but I also don't have a lot of faith in SDNY. Uh, you know, they previously let <laughs> Donald Jr. and Ivanka go before. They were supposed to be indicted for felony fraud in 2012 because of mm. their dealings with Trump Soho. And then Trump uh, had his lawyer pay off the judge, uh, Cy Vance, who is still the judge, uh, you know, and who will be looking yep. at some of these cases. And from what I also understand, I believe Barr um, has some oversight in, you know, whether cases go to SDNY. Like, there's not this kind of, um, you know, independence of the courts that I think a lot, a lot of folks wish was there or, or assume is there. And then, of course, you have to consider that they're going to use the same tactics that they've done in all of the other cases. Like in Manafort's trial, they threatened the judge. They threatened the jury. That threatened judge came back later and said that Manafort, probably one of the worst people in this whole saga, and that's the thing a lot, and led an otherwise blameless life. Like, that's not a normal <laughs> comment for a judge no. to ever make, and it's definitely not a normal comment to make about Manafort. And so my assumption is that judge was threatened. The other judge, in Roger Stone's case, uh, Amy Burton Jackson, he threatened to kill her, you know, on the Internet. And he's still out wandering around. He's still, you know, unpunished for that. He never followed up, uh, even though he's obviously a danger. So what we're seeing is mafia tactics. You know, we're seeing yeah. mafia threats and mafia behavior. And I think we should expect to see those same tactics aimed at the SDNY. And, you know, I think this is one of the things that the Democrats don't want to talk to the public about, like, one, because it's very frightening, and two, because it raises the question of, well, how did everyone let this happen? Like, how much, how did we have this level of institutional failure uh, where we're seeing, you know, a mafia state arising in a very blunt and open way, like, beyond our kind of standard level of corporate corruption, which has always been there, uh, in the United States, and they'll have to be accountable for that. But I think that that's necessary. I think that we need complete transparency on this issue, or never... Uh, going to be able to solve it. Do you think that's why so many Republicans specifically and, and former administration officials uh, are just bending over backwards to defend this guy? Is it the mafia tactics? I mean, what does Trump have on them that is causing all of these people to just like really stick their necks out beyond normal, uh, you know, acquiescence to someone like this? Why are they doing that? Uh, it seems to me as if he's just too toxic to, to defend to link your name to, but yet everyone's still doing it anyway. I don't understand why that is. Why do you think? Yeah, no, that's a, a good question. And, you know, this is another example of mafia tactics being very similar, you know, to autocratic tactics. And in states like Russia or Uzbekistan, you really see like a conglomeration of both. And now we're seeing that in the U.S. Um, you know, and so in terms of why the Republicans turned uh, to, into such sycophants for Trump, I think initially there was some careerism, uh, some opportunism. I think a lot of these guys are just dirty, you know, so you can have that. You can be a, you know, a bad actor and simultaneously be threatened, be blackmailed, be bribed. Um, I do think, you know, those are the standard tactics that the Trump camp has used on everyone for 40 years. I don't know why they would have stopped using them on the Republican Party, especially because through Stone and Manafort and others who are, you know, heavily involved as GOP operatives, they have dirt. 
on all of these members of the Republican mm-hmm. Party, particularly, uh, you know, older people um, who've been around for a while. I think there's that. Um, I sometimes wonder about the existence of broader external threats because we have had all these instances of hacking, uh, including hacking of the infrastructure. And we've seen, you know, Russia uh, carry out these kind of tactics in Ukraine, you know, where they brought down their grid. And there was mention of this uh, by some Republicans, including John McCain before he died, repeatedly, you know, that that Russia is threatening to, uh, you know, collapse U.S., uh, you know, grid infrastructure. So I sometimes wonder if that's a threat holding in check not just the Republicans, but the Democrats. In terms of the GOP specifically, you know, one thing that tends to happen when a democracy turns into an autocracy is people will put up a fight at first. You know, you kind of saw this with like Lindsey Graham, for example. Mm-hmm. And over time, um, you know, however they're compromised, whether it's because of dirty money, whether it's because of something in their own life that they don't want revealed, uh, whether it's because they're threatened, they sort of embrace the position they're in because they need, you know, psychologically to uh, to justify it. You know, they can't live the rest of their life feeling as if they're not in control, feeling as if they lack any kind of personal power. And so I think that this kind of ostentatious display of loyalty uh, and attack um, on the Democrats from people like Graham is a way for him to just reinvent himself as an autocratic lackey and to just kind of inhabit that persona fully so that it doesn't seem like he's just like Trump's bitch. (laughs) I think he needs to have a sense of autonomy in this situation. (laughs) And that's gross and it's unfortunate for Mm -hmm. all of us, but it's a pretty um, typical reaction when people become implicated uh, in this kind of criminal plot or into a burgeoning autocratic state. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think Donald Trump is suing uh, Deutsche Bank and Capital One over the congressional subpoena, but not Letitia James's uh, subpoena of Deutsche Bank and Capital One? Um, I'm not exactly sure about the difference between them. I mean, generally speaking, excessive litigation has been a tactic that Trump has used uh, going back to the 70s. You know, when he worked with Roy Cohn, he continued it with Michael Cohen. Uh, A lot of it is buying time. You know, that's Mm -hmm. their greatest asset, which is one of the reasons I was mad that Mueller went so slowly, is they just run out the clock and they consolidate power and they pack courts and they purge agencies and they get players in place that will do their bidding and get rid of the people that they find irritating. I'm wondering if they find Tish James uh, to be too annoying at this point, to be an actual threat for them, and they're trying to figure out how to get rid of her. You know, they got rid of Schneiderman. They got rid of Elliot Spitzer, Roger Stone. I mean, uh, Elliot Spitzer brought this upon himself, as did Eric Schneiderman. But, you know, they they dug up that dirt on them, and they used it when it was most opportune. And so I don't know if they have dirt on Tish James, and they're just waiting for the right time, or they don't have anything on her, and they're trying to figure out a way to get rid of her. Because so far, at least to me, she seems like, you know, a good faith actor who maybe will try to bring some of these charges um, and and have some actual results. But it's hard to tell. It is interesting uh, that they've not yet sued her, although I wouldn't be surprised if they do. Well, that's a really good point that they just haven't deployed against her yet. Like they're just waiting. They've got a plan in place, maybe, or they're working on a plan and they'll eventually unleash it at some point of their choosing rather than doing everything at the same time. Maybe it's that, right? That's one of the biggest misconceptions about these guys. Like everyone gets this wrong. They look at Trump and they just see this like blithering moron, which, okay, fine. (laughs) But like he surrounds himself (laughs) with people who are really good at navigating bureaucracy, at committing crimes and getting away with it, at orchestrating propaganda, managing the media, Mm -hmm. and they love why and wait? People like Roger Stone, you know, who seem like these kind of flamboyant 
nonsensical men are very good at long-term planning and, you know, and thinking of it like a chess player, getting the pieces ready. I mean, everyone says, oh, Mueller, he was playing chess. It's like, you know, Mueller wasn't playing chess at all. These guys actually are. They have a lot invested in this, and they're not just going to, you know, let it go down. Uh, and so that's part of the problem, you know, is that they're not taken as seriously as they should be. I mean, I think they are now uh, because of all that's come to pass, you know, with yeah. Trump as president and the loss of our rights and all these other things. But initially, uh, they weren't because of their personas. And, and that was to their advantage. And I think they knew that, too. Yeah. Uh, just a couple more questions for you, Sarah, and I'll let you get back to the hearings. But uh, if you were a member of the House Judiciary Committee, uh, we just heard today that Mueller is definitely going to be testifying sometime this month, according to Jerry Nadler. Um, what's the first thing you would ask Robert Mueller during his forthcoming testimony? Oh, God. Well, if I knew, you know, America was going to be tuning in, I would ask why he allowed Barr to misrepresent his work for a month before speaking out and then pivot to the work itself. And, you know, one thing I would want to ask him is I would bring up that 2011 speech, you know, where he laid out this threat of organized crime uh, being uh, interwoven into government, which basically seemed to define people like Trump and Manafort Mm -hmm. and say, you know, if you know all this, like, how do you connect this to what you've found today and just let him talk and see, you know, where that goes? Because that to me is one of the key things is that he was aware of what these people were like uh, down to their names and didn't do anything about it. Yeah. What do you what are Greenwald and Taibbi up to right now? They both have this history of attacking powerful men and women at the highest levels of government. So why are they so vigorously defending Trump on this? What do you think about that? I have no idea. Um, you know, <laughs> Greenwald, right. you know, he just doesn't seem tethered to reality. Yeah. I think, you know, they both have somewhat of a, a sunk cost fallacy thing going on where they were so adamant that there is no, uh, you know, illicit relationships with Russia that they want badly for that to be proven correct, which I think is bizarre. I mean, of course, we would all like it for there to be no illicit relationships with Russia, but it's very blatant. And what interests me, especially about Taibbi, is that um, you know, their their traditional work has targeted powerful politicians and corporations. And this, to me, basically is a matter of kleptocracy and a matter of white crime slash organized crime and where those lines blur. You would think that would be a topic mm-hmm. that they'd not just be engaged in, but would want, you know, to bring transparency to, uh, you know, for the benefit of ordinary people who end up getting badly hurt by these kind of criminal syndicates slash corporations slash governments. Uh, and they seem completely, you know, unsympathetic to the incredible damage that this administration and all of its lackeys are doing. Um, and so I think there's a real a real failure of empathy and a real failure of understanding on their part. And you know, Matt Taibbi spent a lot of time in Russia uh, doing a lot of writing and doing a lot of drugs. These, this is just what he's written about. So I'm not like saying anything out of school or making any accusations that are unfounded. He's written extensively about his time in, uh, in Russia. I, I think that could be partly it. I mean, there could be some sort of uh, connection there. Uh, as far as Greenwald goes, I, I have this ongoing theory and it goes back to Edward Snowden. Um, and I'm not sure exactly if there's connection between the, the Snowden story and what's happened with Russia since then, because one was sort of pre-2014 and the other is post-2014, and 2014 being a pivot point, I think, for Russia and the United States posture against Russia. But at the same time, uh, Glenn Greenwald spent a lot of time defending Edward Snowden. Edward Snowden is now a welcome guest of Vladimir Putin, and Edward Snowden mm-hmm. also happens to be Glenn Greenwald's um, main source, like his guy that uh, he seems to have a, a connection with and, and needs to protect. Do you think that might have something to do with it? 
Oh, I, I suspect it does. I mean, Snowden was Greenwald's meal ticket, and then he yeah. was someone who Greenwald adamantly defended and kept saying, you know, no, it's just a, a coincidence that he touched down in Russia with all of this classified information from the <laughs> United States. I mean, I think, you know, Greenwald, of course, um, and, and Snowden in particular, need to be reevaluated yeah. in the context of everything that's happened since, you know, the same way that Assange and WikiLeaks have been reevaluated, and a lot of people who initially uh, worked with or supported Assange and WikiLeaks have now said, you know, I regretted that. I was misled. Like, I was duped. I ended up accidentally spreading Russian propaganda and helping a criminal espionage operation, and mm. I didn't even know it. Like, I think that there's an unwillingness on Greenwald's part, if that's the case, if he was just truly duped, uh, to come forward and admit it. And yeah. if it's something worse, maybe he doesn't want to be investigated. You know, he may just be uh, fearful of that. I think it's in the best interest of everyone to, you know, just come clean because of the broader threat that this administration uh, and all of its apparatus pose, uh, you know, to journalists, to ordinary citizens. Uh, you know, Greenwald often speaks out about human rights, uh, you know, for example, the rights of Muslims and um, you know, other uh, targets of religious persecution in the U.S., mm -hmm. here's an administration that's targeting them. Like, you'd think you'd want to, you know, stop that and use whatever powers you had uh, to do so, but everything Greenwald has done recently has just helped Trump, uh, yeah. helped streamline this narrative. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't understand why he's doing that, since, of course, the narrative uh, Greenwald puts out contradicts objective truth. Seems to me as if his drive to scold Democrats is greater than his drive to actually pursue what's right and, and sort of his actual personal politics, which uh, are decidedly somewhat liberal, but uh, uh, sort of somewhere on that, that horseshoe diagram where they, <laughs> they kind of meet up with uh, some crazies on the, on the far right, too. So it uh, seems yeah. very strange to me. And of course, the Edward Snowden story has a lot of the same players. Edward Snowden's spending some time at the Russian consulate in Hong Kong and then getting chauffeured to Moscow by WikiLeaks lawyers. Seems like mm -hmm. there there are some things there that you could uh, focus on as having some sort of connection to uh, the overall Russian attack after that. So, uh, but Sarah, I, I really appreciate your time, and it's a it's a hugely busy day, lots of news breaking at this uh, at this point in time. But I really appreciate uh, you coming on the show and, and joining me today to talk about all this stuff. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, good luck with Gaslit Nation, and tell uh, Andrea I said hi. Okay, thank you. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Bye bye. Bye.